Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. In this special bonus episode, you'll get answers to some frequently asked questions about COVID-19 from epidemiologist Amish Adalja. Dr. Adalja is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, and he'll help you understand what we know and what we don't know as of this week. We're just going to dive straight into the interview today to get you the facts. And then Cody and I will unpack what we learned at the end of our conversation. We hope you stick around. Let's satisfy some curiosity. What do we know for sure about this this whole thing in terms of transmissibility, symptoms, severity, mortality rate, incubation period? Is there anything we know 100% for sure? Or is our understanding about all of this constantly evolving? Our understanding is constantly evolving, and we do have some solid knowledge, though, as well. Remember that coronaviruses didn't just begin with this new virus, that that's a a large viral family and that there are six other human coronaviruses. And we can use what we know about those coronaviruses to try and understand this coronavirus. There may be some differences, but viruses tend to usually have very similar characteristics as other members of their family. So we do know that the incubation period probably is at most 14 days, but around six or five or six days for most people. We know that this transmits through the respiratory route primarily with coughs and sneezes being the, the vehicle, how people spread it to each other. And, and we know what the clinical syndrome is, that most people have a mild illness that's cold-like in nature, and there are uh, a proportion that will develop pneumonia, and that pneumonia can be quite severe in a small proportion of individuals. We know that the, the risk factors for severe disease tend to be the older adults and those with other medical problems, which tracks with what we know about other respiratory viruses. So I do think we know a lot about it, but obviously there are little nuances that are changing every day as we learn more about the specifics of this particular member of a well-characterized viral family. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah, in terms of the the severity, I know you mentioned that certainly older adults are at risk. Um, Like for me personally, I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I know that there's many other conditions that have have some kind of enhanced susceptibility to this. I I believe I've also heard like obesity can be a problem. So um, can you just dig a little deeper into kind of what the high risk entails? Sure. So we know that medical comorbidities or other conditions that you might have confer an increased risk, but we don't know exactly what those exact risk factors might be. Is it diabetes? Is it heart disease? Is it lung disease? There are lots of extrapolations we can make for other respiratory viral infections. And from there, we can decide what what applies specifically to this virus when you actually look at the cases and try and see what's represented in the severe cases. But I would say in general, uh, any kind of lung disease, especially something like emphysema, Uh, that's caused by cigarette smoking uh, would be a high risk factor. Diabetics tend to have more worse outcomes with with infections. And I do think that um, we may see that with this uh, infection as well, but it has to be tested in a in a proper trial where you're actually looking at individuals and their risk factors, seeing which ones come out. With obesity, we learned a lot about obesity and the risk for severe disease during 2009 H1N1. And, uh, Obese individuals have different metabolic abnormalities. They have, they have decreased lung function and decreased physiologic reserve, and that can also put them into, uh, into a high-risk category. Obviously, immunosuppressed people, people who might have had a, a solid organ or a bone marrow transplant, people who are on auto, have autoimmune conditions and take immunosuppressing medications, all of those individuals would be at increased risk for severe infection. That kind of leads into the first question that I guess that I had in my original email, which which is, you know, a lot of what you just said is kind of a comparison to the seasonal flu. 
But at the same time, I, I feel like um, maybe some researchers are suggesting that there are too many comparisons to the seasonal flu. Are we comparing this too much to the seasonal flu or not enough? Like, w- what is misleading about those comparisons and, and what should we be paying attention to? Well, you have to see what you're comparing. They're both respiratory viruses and they both cause a similar clinical syndrome. That's where the comparison basically ends. You can't really talk about what the, the case fatality ratio is uh, and compare the two because they're a little bit different because we have influenza vaccines, we have influenza antivirals, uh, and we have a population that's been exposed to this to in similar influenza viruses uh, that, that exist. And we don't have any of those three things for coronaviruses. So the analogies only go a certain distance before they really uh, break down. But what I would say is that when you compare this with the seasonal flu viruses, not a pandemic flu virus, but a seasonal flu virus, it appears to be significantly more likely to cause death. How much more significantly? I think on the order of maybe eight to tenfold, at least based on the numbers that we have now, and those numbers are changing all the time. So if you take 2017, 2018 in the United States, 80,000 Americans died from influenza. That was one of the most severe seasons on record, minus the pandemics. So you can take that and understand that that's going to be several hundred thousand deaths if if the math uh, hold. So in, in the sense that this is a respiratory virus and they have some similar transmission characteristics, yes, but this is a distinct virus from a different viral family and appears to be much more likely to cause severe illness, hospitalization, and death than influenza. And obviously, uh, influenza also can be really hard on children. Uh, for example, this season, we've had almost record levels of flu, flu deaths uh, in the in, uh, in this year. And this virus, the coronavirus, is something that's very mild for children. So there are differences like that as well. So the, the, the children is becoming obviously a major issue right now, especially it has impact society and the workforce and all that. If it is so mild in children, what's the point of closing schools? The point of closing schools isn't necessarily to, to protect the children from getting infection. It's to protect the the adults and vulnerable populations from being exposed to children who are magnifiers of the infection. That's something that we've seen with influenza. It's not clear if this happens with coronaviruses, but people are extrapolating from influenza to the coronavirus. And that's why school closures are occurring as a way of kind of flattening the epidemic curve in a way to prevent people from coming into contact with this virus, especially if they are those at high risk for complications, which could really put our healthcare system into a uh, stress mode. Certainly. So right now, basically everyone's on lockdown. We're in Illinois. Illinois is one of the states where they announced that they're going to close all restaurants and everything for 14 days. What is going to be accomplished by discouraging or or limiting uh, large groups of people getting together and putting people essentially in isolation for for two weeks? What what good is going to come from that? So the rationale is that this will decrease transmission intensity and allow the cases to accrue at, at a slower pace, a pace that's easily manageable by or more easily manageable by our healthcare system than a huge spike in cases that might occur if people went on interacting the way they do. And this is being taken from the Italian experience where they had that type of a spike and really put their hospitals in their northern region of Lombardy into uh, major crisis mode. That's the rationale here. I think it will be questionable how how well it will work with just two weeks. Sometimes you have to do this for, for a long period of time. Uh, up to eight weeks in some instances. And these types of social distancing measures are something that have to be weighed against the consequences and the costs of them. There are huge economic costs and 
societal costs to them that have to be constantly evaluated because you are going to be putting people out of work and people need to work in order to buy to buy goods and goods that they need to survive and we need to make sure that we're not causing more harm than good so these types of decisions need to be continuously evaluated they need to be nuanced geographically specific uh, and and have clear triggers for ending uh so i i think that's the, that's the issue that we need to to do when we do these types of social distancing measures but certainly mass gatherings like parades and sports events are really major nexuses for viral transmission. Makes a lot. Of, yeah, there's a lot to weigh with with the, the social implications, the economic implications. If everyone can be a transmitter, like if I'm a young, healthy 22 year old and I could be carrying the virus, even though it may not impact me significantly, why is it still OK then for me to go out and interact with other people and potentially infect them? But this is the important question. Each person has to decide a little bit in their own hierarchy of of values what's essential to them and what's non-essential to them. Obviously, I'm a I'm a young I'm a young person. I'm 44 years old, and I'm a doctor, and I need to go to work. So there are going to be instances where people cannot self-isolate or cannot self-quarantine or or do any of these types of social distancing. I meant to say social distancing measures, not self-isolate or self-quarantine. There there are going to be instances. What if you are a police officer but you're young? How are you? So they're going to be essential services and you have to really think about who you are and what you are. We're not going to completely shut down the country in a in a China or Italy manner. We're trying to do very targeted social distancing measures. And I do think that people are going to go out. They're going to need to get groceries. They're going to need to do things. And it's just important to be very mindful of what you're doing and that you are washing your hands, that you're not going out if you're sick and that you're not touching your face and you're practicing the best social distancing you can do within the confines of your life. I think this becomes an issue that is, that can be very difficult for people to do and very disruptive for people to do. And public health authorities understand that. And I think it's an open, it's a, it's a debatable question of what the threshold is for when, when it becomes you know, ethical that you not do anything uh, versus doing limited types of activities where you're being mindful. I think it, it's, it's, these aren't easy questions, and this is kind of unprecedented in, in our lifetimes. I have a, a follow-up for that. Um, say I'm a young, healthy server at a restaurant. And um, I mean, considering that maybe like last week when restaurants weren't closed, and I figure I'm just going to be exposed to this all day at work anyway, um, might, I, might I as well just go out and see people at night because I was already exposed? Or is there a dose um, thing at, at work here? Well, it's not a dose. The, n- the number of contacts that you have, the more people you come into contact with, the more likely you are to be exposed to the virus. So if you can limit your contacts, even okay. if you're decreasing them by 20%, that, that's going to decrease your chances of coming into contact with the virus. You might still come into contact with it, but you're decreasing it by just minimizing your social contacts. I think okay. maybe, uh, I think maybe the, the question more, if I'm understanding right, was maybe like if I'm around eight different people with coronavirus versus just one, is there a chance that my symptoms could be worse or that uh, the severity could be, could be worsened because like maybe it's slightly different versions of it or anything like that? I don't believe there's any evidence for that. Obviously, if you're inoculated with a high dose of that, if you're a doctor, for example, and you get sprayed with some kind of medical body fluid, that, that's going to be a different story than in ordinary life circumstances. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of there are some people that are just like, well, we're all going to get it anyway. Why don't we all just expose ourselves to it right now to build up immunity? What's the response to that? Well, that's actually the United Kingdom's approach. That's what's going on right now. Uh, But the issue is, is that how can you ensure that you're not going to transmit it to somebody who has a propensity to have a severe case and you're going to let the virus kind of 
use you to get to some someone that they can really uh, can really be damaged by the virus. That's the issue. If there was some way to technically keep away all of the people that are at high risk, uh, you could think about that. But I don't think that there's a feasible way of keeping the compartments of people who are at high risk for complications away from those who are at low risk for complications. Yeah, it makes sense. That's my other question is just in terms of sanitizing and the social distancing, we've all been reading the tips on, you know, wash your hands, stay six feet away from people, make sure you don't touch your face and your eyes and all that stuff. Like, how effective is that? Like, if I go to the grocery store and everyone is doing that, am I going to be like 99% safe? Am I just going to be slightly more safe? With with hand with doing hand hygiene, you talk about hand hygiene in a grocery store setting. I, I do think the more people that do that type of thing, the better off you are. If everybody was doing it, and we wouldn't have as many problems and, and transmission events as, as there are. But you can't really quantify it. It's very hard to, to come up with numbers for how much safer you are if everyone's doing hand hygiene versus not doing hand hygiene. Are there any other like major myths you've been hearing or frequently misunderstood facts about this that you think we should take care to clear up? Well, I think that the fact is that people think about this. We, we alluded to this earlier, that talking about the flu. The flu analogies are really important to help us understand this, but they only go so far. And this isn't just another flu. It seems to be more severe than the flu. And remember, there is no population immunity to it. So there, there's going to be a long a lot of the population infected. And if you infect a lot of people with a virus that maybe has a case fatality ratio of 0.84, maybe that doesn't sound that much to an individual, but if you think about how many people are going to get infected, including those who are going to require hospitalizations, and then think about what our hospital capacity is like, that's what this crisis is about. The fact that we were late to the game responding here in the United States of finding cases and isolating them. And that has now led us to a, a position where we don't have the capacity to deal with anything near an Italian-style outbreak. Makes sense. Right now, the number of confirmed cases is going to be a, a small fraction of the number of people who are actually infected because they don't have any symptoms. They're asymptomatic. Let's say we're all in lockdown. I think it's going to be about two weeks for a lot of places. When do you think we're going to have a, a, a pretty good idea of how severe this we really let this get before the, uh, you know, before the major closures and before the, the social distancing really reached its peak. Is it like five days, 10 days? Well, usually when you talk about social distancing, you have to do it early and you have to do it for quite some time. So two weeks may, may or may not be enough, but I do think you have to weigh it against the economic damage that's happening for people being out of work and being unable to feed their families uh, and, and businesses shutting down and people's livelihoods being ruined. So I think you have to really think about how long you can do this without causing with doing the least amount of damage and getting the most amount of benefit. So I think in two weeks we'll have some idea if it's working or how it's worked and then have to come up with a decision whether or not we want to continue this or target it or lift it in certain areas. So it's not, it's not going to be blanket and it's not going to be all or none. It really has to be an important uh, and nuanced decision where people are actually taking into account all the variables and all of the extraneous costs that are, that are happening. So I think that that's, I think two weeks in the reevaluation um, and deciding to go forward is the best way to do this. And, and to be very nuanced about it and not uh, and not have not create like a China, a China Italy type of shut uh, lockdown type of behavior. That's not going to work in the United States. Got it. Yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, one other question in terms of the seasonality of it, like a lot of people are saying, oh, it's not going to survive once it get warm. Uh, summer is going to kill it off. What is your response to that? And is that reality? Well, we know that other coronaviruses, the, the four of the human coronaviruses that cause part of our common cold, they, they tend to have that seasonality. We don't know anything specific about this coronavirus, but like I said earlier, that viruses in the same family tend to have 
similar behavior. So we may see some decrease in transmission, maybe not as marked as we do with the other coronaviruses because there is no population immunity and that might overcome some of the unfavorable environmental characteristics. But I do think we may see some, some change in, in, in the transmission as we get warmer in the, in, the nor- in the temperate climates. And remember that there's going to be differences between the northern and southern hemisphere. Is there one specific source other than following you on Twitter that you think is, is a really great way for people to go for their info? Because I, I feel like there's, there's a little bit of disagreement even within the, the health community about kind of what to do about this. I would recommend the CDC website, and then there's a news organization called Stat News that's run by the Boston Globe or owned by the Boston Globe. I think that's a, another good source that I recommend as well, and I read it frequently. Great. Yeah, I love Stat. That's great. Awesome. Uh, no, and uh, Dr. Dalja, where can people follow you and uh, get more information from you? You can follow me on Twitter. It's, uh, my handle is at Amish AA, so A-M-E-S-H-A-A. Awesome. Again, that was Amish Adalja, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. And for full context, we recorded our conversation with him late in the afternoon on Monday, March 16th. So pretty current stuff. And I hope it was helpful. And we do have one bit of clarification on something that Dr. Adalja said. The general belief, including my own belief recently, was that the UK was actually promoting the idea of herd immunity, where they would just let people get sick so that people could build up immunity and then protect more at-risk folks. But according to an article in The Atlantic by Ed Yong, that's not actually what they were suggesting. It was just sort of a misunderstanding of what they were saying. Although Ed Yong does point out that the communication was really kind of confusing and everyone would be forgiven for thinking that that was what they were saying because it really seemed that way. But the UK is not suggesting that they just let everyone get infected and build up herd immunity. So don't worry about that. Yeah, clear communication is very important right now. And people should be extra careful on social media, especially with the kind of information they're sharing and spreading. Because I'm starting to see this semi-regularly as you'll see a a meme or a couple factoids that are being shared. And let's say like 60 to 90 percent of the facts in it are totally right and you can verify them elsewhere. But then the rest of it might put something really outrageous out there or really terrifying or really over the top that just isn't true. And that's like a major way that misinformation spreads. You mix in some believable stuff with some unbelievable stuff. So please be careful on social media, like really careful and check your sources and just make sure that what you're sharing isn't just some random dude's LinkedIn post or uh, or Instagram account of something firsthand. And that, you know, it's it's from a, a fact checked source like curiosity. Yeah, I mean, this is a good time to say that all of our sources that we use for our stories are right there in the show notes. So you can always just go to those primary sources and check what we're saying. Yeah, dude, you have been crushing it with the bibliographies. I feel like we have some of the most detailed show notes with research links that you can possibly find. Like you can find the direct scientific study for almost everything we talk about in the show notes of every episode. Yep, that's what we're trying to do. It's almost like you've been doing this for a while. (laughs) Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, wash your hands and stay curious.